Before we start this morning, uh, I want you to know, I went to see the movie Courageous on Friday night. I would highly recommend that movie. It was really, really good. So if you get a chance to go see that, I think you ought to do that. Okay, today marks week number three of our 443-week study of the book of... Okay, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, we're not going to take nearly that long, but we're also not going to rush through this book because I believe it's incredibly pertinent and incredibly helpful. So we're going to take our time, okay? I'm sorry, there's a question? Okay, good. We're going to take our time because I don't, I don't want to miss anything important. Now, I have it on pretty good authority as I pray that we will finish before Jesus comes back to get us. But uh, I don't know how much before that will get done. There's a point I want to make this morning uh, as we start before I, I open the revelation um, with you. Um, it's something I felt really strongly this week a couple of times as I was preparing. Some people have a tendency to miss what I think is a vital connection between the first three chapters of this book and the rest of the book. The first three chapters, as you know, are the, the seven letters written to the seven churches. And then after that comes the, the futuristic prophetic stuff. A lot of people call that, and that's the good stuff. That's the interesting stuff. Um, that type of attitude, that type of assumption can cause a person to miss some really, really important key lessons for their own spiritual life. Keyword, your own own spiritual life, both in the present and in the future, because there's an inseparable link between those first three chapters and chapter four and on. Yes, they are seven letters written to seven literal churches that existed almost 2,000 years ago, but they are also eternal, timeless words for you and me. I said last week that these... um, These seven letters make up what I call a plumb line, a standard of obedience and attitude. I knew I'd do that. And behavior. What God expects of his church today, of his people today. So here's what I believe God dropped in my heart for today. All right. Uh, Almost like one of those, he who has an ear, let them hear what the spirit is saying. Because I think this is a, a word from God. There's a key connection between your and my obedience and attitude and behavior and our readiness for the end. I'm going to say that again. There's a key connection between your attitude, your obedience, and your behavior and your readiness for the end, for for what's coming. Really, for what, as the Bible says, must happen As this drama unfolds, proceeding towards Jesus coming again. Remember, I I shared with you last week this verse, the first verse out of the Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his bondservant the things which must shortly take place. All the craziness in the world, even if it gets more crazy, more chaotic, God is saying to us from the beginning of this book, these things have to happen. I'm still in control. Still sovereign, I'm still good. Don't ever think I've lost control. Don't ever think I sit in heaven, God speaking, going, Oh no, why did that happen? Now what are we going to do? God's sovereign, right? God's good, right? 
So as this thing unfolds, we need to know that. But you also have to know that these first three chapters, these seven letters, that plumb line, that standard, will help us be ready for what's coming. So do not for one minute dismiss what we're talking about as, yeah, 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 let's get through this till we can get to the, the prophetic stuff. I, I think that to the degree we, we take to heart and we apply what's written in these seven letters, we're going to be better prepared to face what's coming. And I don't think what's coming is going to be real pretty in some cases, okay? Now, I'll show you the connectedness between these seven books and your own personal readiness and preparation as we go along. I'm not trying to be overdramatic. I'm sure not trying to be melodramatic. I am not a prophet of gloom and doom. Okay, so let's get that clear from the start. But I believe with all my heart that we need to take these seven letters to heart and to measure our lives against what they say to us. To have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying today to us in these letters. So that we're ready. Ready for what? I don't know. Ready for whatever comes. Don't you want to be ready for whatever comes? I hope so. So, as we've been doing each week, we're going to have someone come and read for us. Uh, This morning it's going to be Eric Brolsma. And we're going to read this in two sections, okay? Uh, He's going to read, first of all, for us Revelation 2, Revelation 2, verses 8 through 17, which are the letters to Smyrna and Pergamum. And to the angel... Of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have um, excuse me, but I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Thanks, Eric. You can have a seat. All right. 
to the angel of the church of Smyrna right? Let me give you the lowdown on Smyrna, okay, to give you some context. Last week we talked about the, the church at Ephesus. Smyrna is a city north of Ephesus, about 40 miles. It was another very large city. They estimate around 200,000 people. Very, very wealthy city, noted for its sciences and its medicines. It was also a harbor town. Uh, this is where Homer was from. Not, not Homer Simpson. Homer who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Okay, this is where he was from. He was from Smyrna. Uh, There were several temples there to the Greek gods, to Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite. Uh, It was also the center of emperor worship. Now, that's a really important point. Uh, The emperor Domitian made it mandatory for every citizen of Rome to burn incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar and to say, Caesar is Lord. Now, how would that sit for a Christian who confesses that Jesus is Lord? That would make it a little difficult, wouldn't it? (laughs) To say the least. All right. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by which those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. In each of these seven letters, John relates and equates the physical conditions, landscape, situation of the city with some kind of spiritual connection, okay? Christ is identified here as the first and the last who was dead and who has come back to life. That was important to the people of Smyrna. They could identify with this because this city was destroyed several times by earthquakes. Probably the most recent was um, around three centuries before Christ. And so they were encouraged to remember, think about new life, think new life, think resurrection. Our city itself has seen this. It was destroyed but came back to life. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Folks, these people, as much as any of these other seven churches, experienced inordinate persecution for refusing to worship the emperor. I will not say Caesar is Lord. It would be to deny my my very faith at its core. Well, what happened to these people was not just persecution for not worshiping the emperor, but there were strong economic sanctions that came against them as well. It was almost law that if you were one of those who would not bow to the emperor, the mandate was don't support those people and don't support their business. So they did experience great tribulation and great poverty as well. Church, if that day comes to America, will you be ready? Will you be ready, businessman, businesswoman, will you be ready if that day comes to America where the sanctions are so strong against you being a Christian that they will try and and keep you from operating a business under Christian principles? Will you be ready? You know, if your answer is, I need to think about that, good for you. But think about it, that day could come. It talks about the, the Jews who are of a synagogue of Satan. Now, that's not literally, there was not, you know, first congregation of Satan. There wasn't a synagogue called the synagogue of Satan. It wasn't a literal thing. But what what John was saying here is, I in the spirit can identify what's behind this persecution that you're going under. Some of it's from Rome, but some of it is from these, these Jews who are in 
in the city of Smyrna who are standing against them. It's just like in the time of Christ. Remember when Jesus was brought before Pilate? Who was it that was railing against him and talking about him being a traitor to Caesar? It was the Jews. It was the leader of the Jewish leaders of the Jewish community. It's the same thing going on here. They were in cahoots with the Roman Empire, with the Roman government, to try and stop and thwart and stifle and destroy the church that was in Smyrna. There's always been a segment of the Jews that stand vehemently against the gospel and against the Lord Jesus. If you want to go and look at this on your own, we don't have time this morning, but write down in your, in your notes, maybe on the back of your bullet in John chapter 8. It's the story of the Jews coming to him and saying, our father is Abraham and who are you? And Jesus' basic message to them was, if your father really was Abraham, you'd know who I was and you'd worship me. Your father's a liar. Not Abraham, but He was identifying that it was the devil, the schemes of the devil behind their resistance to Christ and to the gospel. Do you know that there's nothing new under the sun? That if something works back then and it still works today, the devil's going to run that play until we finally stop it. You know that's true, don't you? Well, what was going on here in Smyrna was the same thing going on during the time of Christ. And it's the same thing that goes on and on and on and on through history. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Ten days, probably not literally ten days, but symbolic of there's a short time of great suffering and persecution coming. You'll be given the crown of life. That was the reward for perseverance and faithfulness. It's also mentioned in James 1, verse 12. Be faithful unto death and I will give you this crown of life. You won't be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? Well, you've got to stick with me. 400 weeks from now, we'll get to Revelation 20. And we'll talk about the second death. Okay, that's where it's found. And we'll go into that in great detail then. Smyrna, now get this, this is really, really important, it's significant. Smyrna is one of two churches, Philadelphia was the other one, with no rebuke given. There's no, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. There was no correction given to this church. Wouldn't it be great to be Smyrna? Wouldn't it be great to be the church at Smyrna? Hey, you know what? If we're honest with ourselves... My heart in that moment is, can I get back to you on that one, Kent? Can I think about that a while? Because sure, the right answer is, oh man, it would be great to be the church at Smyrna. Nothing against us. No rebuke. We're walking right. We're living right. We're doing what we're supposed to do. But there's a great cost in that, isn't there? Suffering, tribulation, persecution. Those people had to count the cost. And you see, rather than us giving some flippant, oh, it'd be great to be the church at Smyrna. I think we need to count the cost also. Now, the right answer is yes, indeed. It would be great to be that church. But we have to understand suffering, prison, tribulation, maybe even death. We need to see the bigger picture. And on the scales of of God's economy, look at this and say, okay, on this side, a lot of hardship. On the other side... God's commendation and pleasure. And I hope we live in a place that says, I don't care what I have to endure. I want God's pleasure. I want His commendation. I want Him to look at me, look at us and go, well done, 
That's a good job, church. Now, in light of that understanding, that's what we want, isn't it? It doesn't come, however, without cost. And you know, there's a lot of people who go, Pastor Kent, you talk about suffering and and tribulation and maybe even death. I don't want my kids to undergo that. That's a good, honest response, isn't it? How many of you feel that way as a parent? I don't want my kids to be having to go through that. Neither do I. But you know what? More than that, I want them to be ready just in case that is what we have to endure as Christians, don't you? You see, there's, there's no good thing about let's just remove ourselves as far from suffering as we can. When sometimes those are the things Jesus himself said must take place. We just have to be ready for what comes down the pike. All right, let's move on. To the angel in the church of Pergamum, right? Here's, here's the scoop on Pergamum. This city was about 60 miles north of Smyrna. Uh, it was on the Casus River Valley. Um, it was the, the official provincial capital of, of Roman Asia. It was a beautiful city. It was very, very wealthy. had a magnificent library. It's the place that parchment was invented. Okay? But there was an awful lot of false worship in that city of Pergamum. Uh, there was worship to Dionysus, who was the god of the royal kings, symbolized by the statue or an idol of a bull. And the other one was worship of, this is always a tough one to say, Asclepius. Asclepius. That was the savior god of healing, symbolized by the snake. People came from all over the world to, to experience, quote-unquote, miracles by this false god. All right? So, to the church at Pergamum right. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Christ is identified in verse number 12 as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Pergamum, it's, it's interesting. Remember how I said there, there are analogies to the literal city and its circumstances to what the scripture says? Um, Pergamum was one of the rare cities in all of the Roman Empire given the right to perform capital punishment. You know how they did capital punishment? With a sharp two-edged sword. And so when he writes this, it, it gets their, their attention. The reminder here to them and to us is this. The one from the greater, more powerful kingdom also has the more powerful weapon. His sharp two-edged sword is so much more powerful than the government's sharp two-edged sword. And under the fear of persecution and maybe even the loss of life because you will not reject your faith, ultimately we stand before the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Do we not? Yes, we do. All right. It talks about this being the place where Satan's throne is. Do you think that's literal? Do you think you could go down the street and go to the place? Well, there it is right there. Look, Margaret, Satan's throne. No, it's, it's symbolic. Again, it's figurative language, okay? Pergamum was the first city. It had the very first temple of emperor worship in the whole kingdom, in the whole empire. And so it was built to honor Augustus in AD 29. And so Satan's throne refers to the fact that this is the beachhead. This is the foundational place. This is where it was established. This worship of the empire as opposed to the worship of the one true living God. 
That's what it means when it says Satan's throne. So in this place, there was both civil and religious power that were very, very anti-Christian that made Pergamum a real stronghold against the gospel. We don't know who Antipas was. There's really no record. We just know that he was a martyr that suffered and died for his faith. Paid a huge price, didn't he? Was it worth it? Absolutely. All right, let's keep reading. But I have a few things against you because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. I want to just read something from a commentary that I've been using. Uh, It's by Merrill C. Tenney. It's called Interpreting Revelation to talk a little bit about this teaching of of Balaam, and then I'll explain it. The story of Balaam is found in Numbers 22, if you want to go home this week and take a look at that. But here's what the commentary commentary said. The commendation of the church at Pergamum betrays a moral laxity which had crept into it. The teaching of Balaam recalls the Old Testament episode of Balaam's attempt to serve God and at the same time to please his enemies. Summoned by Balak, king of Moab, to curse the people of God, he refused because God would not give him permission to do so. When Balak offered him a richer reward, he tried again to see whether God would change his mind. God allowed him to go to Moab, but compelled him to utter blessings instead of curses, with the result that Balaam was embarrassed and that Balak was exasperated. Finally, when he could not curse Israel... Here's one for you. When he himself couldn't curse Israel, he taught Balak how to corrupt them so that they might be brought into the judgment of God and bring it upon themselves by their immorality and idolatry. Balaam represents those who foster evil and disobedience to God under the guise of piety and doing the right thing. In other words, it's people who want it both ways. It's people who are double-minded, one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. How does that work? It doesn't. God never, ever calls us to that kind of spiritual compromise. You're either in or you're out. You're either hot or you're cold. But you can't have it both ways. It says that these people hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We talked about them last week. That's the group that that taught there is great, great license to sin. In other words, God understands you're just flesh and blood. You can't help yourself. Just sin. Grace covers all your sin. Grace does cover our sin, does it not? But that is not the attitude that we're to have towards sin. Now, I want you to notice something. There's a progression here. All right. We started today, or last week rather, talking about Ephesus. In Ephesus, Ephesus, it said that that church, one of the good positive things was they hated the teachings of the Nicolaitans. They were not confused about it. They knew that to, to say that sin is okay and to give license for sin was wrong. They hated that. The Spirit said, good for you. You're right. Pergamum had some people, it says, that held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. There's something that had infiltrated this church that says, you know, I think they're right. We can't help ourselves. We're, we're just people. We're just flesh and blood. And, you know, flesh, blood, it's, it's bad, it's nasty, it's evil. Spirit is good, but we're still flesh. We, we, we can't help it. And John, well, God, through the angel, through John, indicts them regarding that. That is never a right and proper doctrine. 
those deeds had crept in and become legitimized. They'd become doctrine in that church. Do you know how much of that is going on in America today, in the church in America? License for sin, tolerance for disobedience. Oh my goodness. You see how this applies to today? And do you see how we have to keep ourselves on a short leash when it comes to this? We can't let our minds go there to think that it's okay. Well, listen. First we had Ephesus, then we have Pergamum. When we get to Thyatira here in a minute, you'll see that they went one step even further. They became very nihilistic in their thinking about all this stuff. So here's what was happening, okay? These people were participating in the sacrificial meals to the pagan gods. And at these sacrificial meals, there was illicit sexual practice, okay? The cult, the temple cult prostitutes would come and there was all kinds of immorality going on. And some of the people in the church decided that, well, you know, it's just a harmless thing. It's a part of the festival. Mardi Gras, party hard, doesn't matter. It's okay. And the spirit is saying, no, it's not. How many of you know that sin's never okay with God? It's never okay with God. So the word to them was, therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, there's a clear-cut command here, isn't there? One word. What's the one word? Repent. Repent. Come out of that thinking. Turn around. Change your mind. Go the other direction. Change your thinking and your behavior. It couldn't be more clear than that. When it says I'm coming quickly, almost all commentators and scholars, and I would agree with this, although I might not be one of them, don't believe this is talking about the second coming. It's talking about Jesus by the Holy Spirit coming to judge this congregation and to judge the false leaders and to judge those who are practicing these kinds of things. He is coming against them with the sword of his mouth. Again, to right the wrong teachings, to change wrong thinking and wrong attitudes. That sword of his mouth is this, that Hebrews chapter 4 talks about in verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, Jesus by his spirit is coming to this church and he is going to judge them for wrong thinking, for wrong theology that, that condones sin. Well, isn't that just a nice word for 2,000 years ago? Or maybe could that have... 100% application to today and God's heart for his church today. Why? Because he's so vindictive and judgmental? No, because he loves us. Folks, he's coming back. He wants to come back for a bride that is pure and holy and spotless. I heard John Wimber say 25 years ago, Jesus is coming for a bride that's pure and spotless and holy. And right now the bride looks like she's standing on a corner in a tube top and mini skirt. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But God's not going to settle for that. He's doing a work of purity in his church. How should we respond to that? Amen. Do it, Lord. Start in me. Start in us. We want to be a pleasing bride, don't we? We don't want to have one foot in each camp. We don't want to see how much can I live in the world and still be a Christian? How close can I get to the edge and not fall in? That's wrong thinking. And if you think that way, you need to change the way you think. Take it from one who knows.
All right, the promise to overcomers, hidden manna. That's probably contrasting the food offered to idols that they were eating with uh, the true bread of heaven that Jesus was. It's a promise of him as the bread of life sustaining us. That's John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51. We're not going to read that. The white stone with a new name on it. Again, these stones had two different things to them. They used stones to vote. Okay, A white stone was you voted for something. A black stone back then you voted against something in, in a secret ballot. You'd toss your stone in and then they'd count them up. If you got a white stone, that means Jesus is voting for you. How many know Jesus voting for you is like the best thing that could ever happen in your life? All right. If you overcome, you'll get a white stone. The other possibility, they use, they use white stones as an invitation to a banquet. And John might be saying here, hey, as opposed to going to those orgies that they had uh, on those festival times, you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Much better invitation, wouldn't you say? I sure would. You also get a new name. That new name could symbolize uh, a new power, a new possession that you had as a Christian. The fact that you're a new creation. It also could tie to the new name that Jesus possesses. Ro- uh, Romans, Revelation 19.12 talks about when Jesus comes again on that white horse, he's going to have a new name on his thigh that nobody knows. Well, we may be tied into that somehow. Not that we'll have the same name as him, but we will live under that authority and under that blessing of that new name. Man, this is enough to make me want to be an overcomer. How about you? Okay? All right, let's keep going. Eric, would you come on and read for us uh, God's word to the church at Thyatira? And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, What you have, hold hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks, Eric. You may be seated. Nothing like a little light reading, huh? The church at Thyatira received the longest of the seven letters, by far the longest. So here's here's what's up with Thyatira. It was about um, 50 miles due east of Pergamum. 
It wasn't nearly as large, not nearly as great a city, but it had a couple of very important commercial trade items that we need to understand. They were big into wool and linens and special dyes. Remember Lydia in Acts chapter 16, the seller of purple? She was from Thyatira. They did a lot of leather working. They tanned leathers, a lot of bronze work. What you have to understand about Thyatira is they had this, this extensive network between the trade guilds, what we would call today labor unions, okay, among the, the workforce. And each union, each trade guild had their own patron deity. And with that deity, uh, similar to the last church we looked at, there were all these feasts and festivals that uh, included drunkenness and orgies and all this kind of stuff. All right. But the progression gets worse and worse as we go through these three churches, these three cities today. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. That description of Jesus is the only place in the revelation that he is called the Son of God. Uh, It's a reminder of his judgment coming because they paint him with these eyes of flaming fire and these feet like burnished bronze. Could very well be an allusion to the sun god Apollo. He was very big, worshipped uh, highly there um, to compare the sun god with one whose eyes were like a flaming fire and whose feet were like polished, burnished bronze. There's no comparison comparison between, between the two. He was coming to judge this church on the front end rather than at the final end to see if he could get them to repent. Um, They understood this comment about feet like burnished bronze because bronze was a huge industry to them. And uh, it it shone so brightly when it was polished. And the writer is saying, Apollo, the sun god, compared to the son of God, no comparison whatsoever. None whatsoever. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. This was a very divided church. I mean, on the positive side, their deeds, their love, their faith, their service, their perseverance is greater than it was at first. Remember with Ephesus, he talked to them about how you've left your first love. Well, these people, the ones who were walking with God, were not doing that. They were continuing to persevere on just like they were supposed to. That's the good side. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Now, it's very, very important to understand as we tread into this next little section here that Jezebel was almost for sure, not this woman's real name. That there was something bigger going on here that the Apostle John was addressing. I believe it was a reference to Jezebel, Ahab's wife. And let me just read for you a couple things out of 1 Kings about this lovely lady called Jezebel. This is, this is 1 Kings 16, starting at verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, and the, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Does that sound like a good report? Oh my goodness. Okay, let's, uh, let's keep reading. Where do I need to go next? Okay, here we go. Um, no, here we go. Surely there was, this is in uh, 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because of Jezebel, his wife. She incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. So Ahab was a bad guy. Jezebel, his wife, also a very bad lady. It says that his wife incited him, okay? Now, I want you to know something. It takes an Ahab to have a Jezebel. Can't just blame the woman, men. It takes an Ahab. It takes a man who is inclined and prone that way to allow those kind of things to go on. All right. Um, another comment about Jezebel and how she incited her husband. Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, and then Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. And then later on it says that Jezebel had 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, and they ate at Jezebel's table. Jezebel was systematically desiring to destroy the influence of God in that nation and to support and encourage and even feed the prophets of the Baal and the prophets of the Asherah. She was a nasty lady. Now I want to be very clear on this next point, so if you don't hear anything else today, hear this, all right? Jezebel, in this case, is talking about a person. And in this case, in Revelation chapter 2, it's talking about a person. But the focus is not upon the person. The focus is not upon the person. The focus is upon the spiritual power, the spiritual force at work in and through that person. And folks, this is not just a woman issue. This is a control issue. And it, it affects men as well as women. It really does. My encouragement to you is do not start labeling people. As I go on and talk about what the goal of that spirit of Jezebel is and how it works, don't start labeling people. Look behind a person who might be a pawn or a puppet and see what this spirit is trying to do. But this spirit is alive and well. Oh, actually sick. It's alive and sick in the church today. All right? Um, I know about this spirit because years ago I dealt with this spirit here at Good Shepherd and it almost took me out. Now, I'm not being melodramatic. It did. But it's not people. It works through people. There are two main traits, two main workings of the spirit of Jezebel. Number one is obsessive sensuality. Obsessive sensuality. This openness to illicit behavior and, and sexual immorality. It's strong. It brings moral decline and moral laxity. The other one is rebellion to godly spiritual authority. 
So number one, obsessive sensuality. Number two, rebellion to godly spiritual authority. Now those two are not inseparably linked. It's not, you won't see them 50-50 even Stephen every time this shows up. It could be stronger in one area than the other. They can work together. They don't have to. But rebellion to godly spiritual authority is a part of what verse 24 rather, is referring to when it talks about the deep things of Satan. The deep things of Satan. 1 Samuel 15.23 says this, Rebellion is just like the sin of witchcraft. That's a powerful word, isn't it? Rebellion to godly authority is like the spirit of witchcraft. And this spirit of Jezebel works to undermine godly spiritual authority. This thing has four goals in mind when it invades a church. Number one is to dominate and to control. It says she calls herself a prophetess. Or you could say prophet, because it's not just female. In this case, it was female. It's people who come in with a long list of credentials and a long list of accomplishments in order to impress and to gain favor with leadership in a church. To get the people in positions of leadership to come their way and to do their bidding. When I have people who come to me and say, do you know who I am? And they start unraveling this list of accomplishments any more instantly I go, I sure do. And I run. Because that is a telltale sign of a heart in the wrong place. Are accomplishments bad? No. Credentials bad? No. It's the attitude that you bring around them. You see... Folks, understand this. And I I stand in front of you as a classic living example of this being the truth. Spiritual authority is not granted by God because you're the smartest, most clever, most dynamic, most talented, most gifted. That's not why God gives spiritual authority. It's not why I'm the pastor of this church. I know that better than anybody. Okay? So it desires to dominate and control. Number two, it desires to unleash a spirit of sensuality. Loose sexual moral standards. Now men, men, look at me. Men, eye to eye right now. Men, okay? Wives, if your husband's asleep, give him a shot in the ribs because everybody needs to hear this. When you read the story of Jezebel and you get to 2 Kings chapter 9, you read that she surrounded herself with eunuchs. She surrounded herself with eunuchs, men who were emasculated. Men, here's the message, okay? If you don't stay pure, if we don't stay pure, if we dabble in immorality and sexual sin, whether it's movies or pornography or inappropriate sexual behavior, I don't care what it is. If we dabble there, the result is shame, guilt, Prayerlessness, distance from God, distance from our brothers, hopelessness. One word for that, emasculated. We have to walk in purity before God. And we have to have brothers to help us be accountable in that wrestle, in that struggle. Amen? Third goal. To stop God's work of repentance. Not just in sexual sin and sexual issues in all areas. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idol. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Now folks, 
Jezebel in this case was leading by example, but that kind of attitude infiltrates the church. There is no desire to repent. And I want to say something today. While I absolutely believe sin is wrong and I make no excuse for sin, a lack of repentance for sin is far worse. We do fall, we do struggle, we do stumble at times, okay? Not that we excuse that, but that's a part of the human condition and this this wrestle we're in in life. I'm not excusing sin one time ever, but I think it's far worse to refuse to repent of sin than it is to sin. To not have godly sorrow and conviction, that's the greater problem. I don't want to name names, but I think this is a great example. When Jimmy Swaggart, that televangelist, fell, my heart broke for him. But my heart broke for him worse because he refused to repent. They were putting him on a a plan of discipline to get him restored. And he just basically bucked his neck and said, I don't answer to anybody but God. And tried to go on with his ministry. Can you hear that toilet flushing sound in the background? It's what happened to his ministry. On the other hand, and I, this is a lightning rod name, Jim Baker, PTL. God did a work in his heart when he was in prison. He's a different man today. Never to excuse his sin, ever, ever, ever. But you see, God is looking for humility and repentance and godly sorrow if and when we do sin. The bigger issue here was she refused to repent. And then number three, and number four rather, the fourth goal is to intimidate godly authority. Intimidate godly authority. This one is in 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, because Elijah stood against the prophets of Baal, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them that you killed by tomorrow about this time. And here's Elijah's response. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. This spirit, when it gets in and starts working, will do everything in its power to intimidate godly authority. Elijah, the man who stood against 450 prophets of the Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah and killed them all, when Jezebel stood up to him and said, I'm going to do to you what you did to them, he runs like a scared little dog. This spirit has power, folks, because its desire is to control and to usurp godly authority. Well, God's got a plan. God's got a way to deal. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness... And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with pestilence. Now, to cast her upon the sickbed there, to throw her on that sickbed, probably has reference to sowing and reaping. What she did to my church, I'll do to her. And that very bed is where she will find out that there are serious consequences to sin if you don't repent. Kill her children... I don't know that that's a literal thing or not. Physical children are going to be killed. It could more likely be referring, like uh, 1 John, when he talks, he writes to the lady, the church, and her children, meaning the Christians in that church. The issue is there are strong repercussions. And if you read that and go, could God do that? Would God do that? Would he, would he throw them on a bed of sickness? Would he kill them? Would he? 
I don't want to find out. Do you? Do you want to test God to the point where you want to see if that's true or not today? Not me. I want to stay as far from that as I can. I want to stay on the shortest leash leash possible in my own life. And I hope you do too. But I say to the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no burden on you. Again, those deep things, rebellion to God's spiritual authority structure, and those deep things of Satan also probably point to Gnosticism. That teaching that uh, the spirit is good, but flesh is evil, and since you're still flesh, you can't do anything about sin. Just sin all you want, it doesn't matter. There was another really twisted, warped teaching back then that went on. And that was a sense that said, you know, the only way to really thwart and confront Satan is to go into his playground and experience firsthand what he does. Why don't you just put a gun to your head and end it before you even go there? I mean, that is such warped thinking that uh, you've got to understand every bit about sin so you understand every bit about grace. Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Paul's answer is, may it never be. These people's answer, hey, sounds good to me. And it's a death trap, folks. It's an absolute, utter death trap. When he talks about those who are not going this way towards those deeper things and says, I place no burden upon you. It's the same idea as in Acts chapter 15 when they had that council to talk to the the new believers and said, hey, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols and things strangled with blood and don't fornicate. And other than that, we place no burden upon you. This is not that hard, okay? God is not out there with a magnifying glass making sure every little thing about your life is perfect or he's not going to love you. We're talking here about the deep things, okay? The deep things of Satan. Nevertheless, hold fast until I come. Folks, here is the remedy for dealing with the spirit of Jezebel. This is when uh, Jezebel was in a place called Jezreel. And one of the eunuchs named Jehu came. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. There's that sensual lure. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? trying to indict him and intimidate him. Then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank and said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her for she's the king's daughter. Now, men, some of you think church is for sissies. When you read stories like that, I mean, that is an Arnold Schwarzenegger, RoboCop moment, okay? I am not for one minute suggesting we literally do that. The point behind that is you have to be ruthless with this spirit. You cannot tolerate this spirit in your midst. Don't blame anybody else. Don't blame it on the spirit. Exercise proper discernment and take responsibility. Be a man. Man, God is calling us to stand up and to exercise proper biblical spiritual authority in our lives, in our families. All across the board, that's what we are called to do. That's what God is looking for in His church. Finally, the promise. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
That refers to Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says of Jesus, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with an iron rod, and you shall scatter them like earthenware. Folks, it's talking about sowing and reaping. And it says to those who properly handle spiritual authority and who properly deal with the misuse of spiritual authority, in the kingdom you'll be granted real authority. And I will give you the morning star. That's a picture of Jesus himself. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David. I am the bright and morning star. The promise in our obedience and our faithfulness is Jesus himself will come to us. Want it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, these are some uh, hard words today, and yet they're good for us. Um, We need to hear them. We want to be, Lord, a people who do not live with one foot in and one foot out. We we don't want to be a people who live as close to the edge, dabbling in sin as we can, and seeing what we can get away with, what the grace of God will cover. Lord, your word tells us in the book of Titus that the grace of God appeared, a different kind of grace appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness, to walk in righteousness and holiness and purity. Yes, Lord, there is a saving grace, but there's also an empowering grace that you desire to give us as your people, to walk in victory, to walk in freedom, to walk in purity. Lord, we want all of these things that you've promised to your church as they are faithful. Lord, we don't know what the future holds in terms of suffering and persecution. But Lord, like Smyrna, we sure want to be ready. We want our children to be ready. We want to be faithful. We want to count the cost of obedience and be a people who walk saying, yes, Lord, at every turn. Finally, Father, help us not be like Thyatira. Help us to understand the uh, devastating impact that sexual immorality will have upon our lives. Lord, not just as men, but especially as men, how it will emasculate us in terms of our faith. Help us to be like Jehu. Help us to be men who throw that thing down and who deal ruthlessly with those temptations. Not just alone, but together as brothers as we fight the good fight. Help us, Lord God, to understand the things of the enemy and the things of God and to be a people who choose to chase hard after the things of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand and um, I'm going to dismiss you. But if you want prayer today for anything that we talked about, uh, ministry team, make your way up here and don't let this moment pass without getting prayer if you need it. Okay. So you're dismissed. God bless you. God be with you. But if you want to stick around for prayer, we are open for business. Bless you. Have a great week.